Two. Too many people? Socialism decreases production, and it also causes a decline in the middle classes numerically by means of oppressive taxation. It is thus a means of population control with respect to the productive middle classes. On the other hand, socialism increases population among the lower classes by means of its welfare subsidies. Thus, socialism has an immediate double impact on population. A third impact of socialism on population then becomes its effort to control and limit population. Very early in the modern socialist era, the sociologists began to realise that the worst elements was the most prolific. Thus, by World War II, the figures of A.B. Hollingshead and W.L. Warner showed, as Marston Bates bluntly stated it, the bums were the most prolific, that is, the lower classes. Not surprisingly, the scare headlines began to stress overpopulation. Thus, we are told, California's population, disaster ahead. In fact, if the present net gain of 1,500 new residents daily continues, there will be 1.5 billion people in California in 100 years, about half the present population of the entire planet. Man, we are told, and by man, the state is meant, must control population growth. In fact, one scientist is busy studying insects as food at the University of California at Riverside. Dr. Ronald L. Taylor urges the use of wax moth caterpillars, grasshoppers, bees, ants, grubs, woodlice and termites as an answer to the population explosion. He said that there is more protein potential in insects than in cattle. Our major problem, we are told, is people, too many of them. A Harvard researcher, Lincoln H. Day of the Harvard School of Public Health, insists that big families are a threat to survival and that American couples will have to limit their families to only two children to curb a, quote, runaway, end quote, population explosion, which threatens to destroy the nation's quality of life. The world is running out of food, we are also warned. A food crisis is approaching. The world's problem is too many people and too little food. Famine stalks the earth, and it is insisted that the basic problem is a skyrocketing population that menaces the earth. Either man now turns his science and reason toward the problem of regulating excessive population growth, and nowhere is there evidence of such an intellectual redirection, or, prodigal in his procreation, he continues blithely on his way, increasingly injured by the mounting pressures of exploding populations. The exploding population problem, if unchecked, dooms the United States to, quote, a slow death, end quote. Not only did many churches concern themselves with the problem, but tract racts began to carry a humour fund pamphlet, The Population Bomb. Within Roman Catholic circles, the, quote, problem, end quote, of overpopulation began to become a familiar refrain also. Catholic writers prepared a National Review supplement on the population explosion demanding action. A publication of the San Antonio and Texas Archdiocese, while rejecting the answers of abortion and birth control, also viewed the situation as one of grave overpopulation. Major periodicals regularly trumpet the menace. Thus, we are warned, the current rate of growth, continued in 600 years, would leave every inhabitant of the world with only one square yard to live on. 
by the year 3500, the weight of human bodies on the Earth's surface would equal the weight of the world itself. By the year 6000, the solid mass of humanity would be expanding outward into space at the speed of light. The world is a cancer, a top Rockefeller Foundation official has said, and that cancer cell is man. Other scientists give us similar statistical nightmares. A British scientist recently calculated that with the population of the world, now about 3 billion, and doubling every 37 years, we will reach the ultimate terrestrial limit of 60 million billion humans in somewhat less than 1,000 years. At that stage, people will be jammed together so tightly that the Earth itself will glow orange-red from the heat. Doomsday is within the life of the younger generation, we are warned. London, UPI Jot down in the calendars for November the 13th, 2026. Doomsday. And don't plan on heading for the hills then. An American scientist says there won't be any room. Robert White Stevens, an American expert on fertilizers and insecticides, predicted here yesterday that, at present growth rates, the world, by November the 13th, 2026, will no longer be able to feed its population and will be stumbling all over itself. On that date, he said, the world's population will have reached 50 billion, a point where there are more mouths to feed than food available, and more bodies to house than land. He said there would be 10,000 persons in every square mile of land, including Antarctica and the Sahara Desert. The American scientist said the world's ultimate practical population is 7 billion. Its current population of 3.2 billion is expanding by 7,000 persons a day, he noted. Another scientist, Dr. Albert Zengorgi, a Nobel Prize winner in 1937, has predicted If world population growth continues its ever-increasing pace, the time will come when men will have to kill and eat one another. His remarks were clearly aimed at theologians who challenged the population and birth control concepts. If human life is sacred and it is a sin to kill, extinguish a life, then it is an even greater sin to call into existence a human life without the ability or the desire to provide for it, leaving procreation to blind instincts, a burden on the rest of society. Another scientist, Dr. John R. Platt, has proposed contraceptive foods as a solution to the population, quote, problem, end quote. By introducing agents in foodstuffs, the population could be controlled. Any couple that really wanted to have a baby would have to go down the street and buy untreated food from the other store, he said. But this wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. It would mean every child a wanted child, which would be a change of revolutionary value for the physical and psychological well-being of the children of the next generation. Such a population control effort is beyond reach technically as well as politically at the moment. But, Platt told the American Institute of Planners, the process, once perfected, could be as simple as putting vitamin D in milk or adding iodine to salt. Another scientist has called for mass temporary sterilisation of all women. Hamilton, Ontario, December the 12th, AP. Dr. William Bradford Shockley, who shared a Nobel Prize in 1956 for helping to develop the transistor, has proposed a sweeping birth control plan that includes temporary sterilisation of all women and government approval before each baby. The Stanford University physicist explained his plan in a lecture at McMaster University last night, 
and also accused, quote, inverted liberals, end quote, of blocking research into inherited intelligence differences between Negroes and whites. The chief points of Shockley's birth control plan are these. The public would first of all vote on the rate of population growth at once. The Census Bureau would determine how many children each couple would have in keeping with the predetermined growth rate and certificates would be issued to them. All girls would be temporarily sterilised by time capsule contraceptives. When a woman and her husband wanted children, they would have the time capsule removed by a public health agency on turning in one of their certificates. After the child was born, the contraceptive capsule would be reinserted. Couples not wishing children or wishing less than they were entitled to could sell their surplus certificates on the open market. Under this system, Shockley said, only people who want and can afford children will have them. The physicist also made a plea for research into racial differences. Shockley's assumption is that the right to give birth and the number of children one can have is subject to the ballot. What then will prevent the majority from denying the right of birth to minority groups? Still another scientist blamed the family for society's discontents. While his remarks were not directed towards the population problem, they were in accord with a general attack on the family as a source of social ills, which include overpopulation. London, AP A British social anthropologist said yesterday, The family and the older generation are the root of society's discontents. Far from being the basis of the good society, the family, with its narrow privacy and tawdry secrets, is the source of all our discontents said Edmund Leach, provost of King's College, Cambridge. The family looks inward upon itself. There is an intensification of emotional stress between husband and wife and parents and children. He spoke in a lecture broadcast by the British Broadcasting Corporation. Defending the young people of today, Leach said society had failed to create a world fit for young people to live in and this failure was marked by, quote, rabid hostility, end quote, toward the young. Radical solutions abound for the problem of overpopulation and the family is given little respect in the considerations. The family, increasingly, is seen as an enemy to survival. In a rapidly moving world, this means that the family resists social planning. The situation, we are warned, is very grave. Pendel gives us a graphic summary statement of the matter. The hell they brew by two and two is hell for me and hell for you. Population on the loose means reproduction unrestrained. The Earth's area is finite. Man's reproductive power is infinite. If 1% more people would add less than 1% more products, overpopulation exists. To exploit all our resources now is to eat a week's rations in one day and then go hungry. As a rule, the fewer qualifications people have for parenthood, the more children they have. Civilizations collapse because problem makers multiply faster than problem solvers. Our own civilization must end if average heredity continues to weaken. Reproduction is something that can easily be overdone. Quality of men, quality of earth, harmony between men's numbers and earth's abundance, for these we strive. The misguidance of couples has resulted in the calamities of nations. One characteristic of Catholic countries is gnawing hunger. Population conditions worldwide in their problem aspects 
have their cause in the behaviour of pairs. Only population control can keep any country's numbers right or the quality of its citizens high. Pendel asked for drastic action, including mass sterilisation of people on a lower level. Begin at the bottom, sterilise far enough up the quality scale to make the quantity no greater than is appropriate for the long-run drag on food resources. Marriage should not be permitted, according to Pendel, without an IQ test, a passing grade of 90 or more being required for a marriage licence. Persons having hereditary defects should also be barred from marrying. Artificial insemination should be used to increase the quality of the human breed. The problem is intensified, we are told, by the quote, fact, end quote, that quote, population is indeed a nation's greatest resource, and great numbers mean great power. Because the population growth is ostensibly in the East, the Organskis hold that world power then is passing from the West, for the largest nations lie in the East. If, as seems likely, these lands complete their own industrialization successfully, their size alone guarantees to them a place that Western nations cannot rival. From this perspective, it is numbers plus state-planned industrialization that equals greatness. This is materialism with a vengeance. Others hold, as for example Hauser, that a limitation of population is necessary if the West and the United States is to maintain its quality and power. The ratio of population to arable land is an increasingly unfavourable one, which is productive of famine. The time has come, we are told, to raise the question, what right have you to have a child? When World War II ended, Focht urged a foreign aid programme contingent upon population stabilisation through voluntary action of the people. Since we are so firmly assured that we are in the midst of a population explosion, can we assume that firm statistical evidence abounds to document this claim? After all, the term, quote, population explosion, end quote, is a highly emotional one, and one would assume that the scientists are on firm ground in using a scare phrase. Marston Bates observed, The statistics are not exact, of course. There is no way of registering the daily births and deaths for much of Asia, Africa and South America, but the experts are in close agreement about the figures. This is good science, of course. Where there are no registers of births and deaths, we are still given detailed population statistics. The experts agree with one another, but do they agree with reality? The population figures, as reported by these experts, are extensive and full for the entire world. Footnotes indicate that full data is often unobtainable, but the total impression is of a reliable, scientific report. On the basis of this vast network of guesswork, projections are also made of future population growth. The forecasting is based on a minimal amount of data. Stanbury and Herman are correct in stating that population forecasting is essentially a matter of judgment. Among the many presuppositions of a non-statistical character which go into forecasting are the following, quote, basic assumptions implicit in all forecasts. The form of government and the political, economic and social organisation and institutions of the United States will remain substantially unchanged. No all-out war, internal revolution, nationwide devastation, epidemic or other disaster will occur. No large-scale epidemic, 
destruction by military action, fire, earthquake or other disaster will occur in the area or within the geographical or economic region to which the area is closely related. Any of these events might have completely unpredictable effects on the population. These basic assumptions, therefore, are either explicitly stated or are implied in nearly every population projection. These, quote, basic assumptions, end quote, are truly remarkable ones. They assume that man has now conquered all the major problems of man, history and nature, and can thus proceed in terms of an assured, clear ceiling. The basic assumption is that we are now on the verge of utopia. We are told that, until now, man has had serious natural checks on his birth rate, which led to a high mortality rate and checked population. According to Dorn, through the centuries of his existence, man undoubtedly has had a birth rate which, if unchecked, long ago would have led to standing room only in the world. Davy has observed of world population figures. One suspects that writers have been copying each other's guesses. We are told that man now has a longer life expectancy, and thus a higher breeding potential. Here, as elsewhere, the facts are loosely used. The conquest is largely of childhood diseases, not of diseases of maturity to the same degree. In the United States in 1900, a newborn child had a life expectancy of 48 years, but by 1950, the expectancy had increased to 67 years, ostensibly a gain of 19 years. But this is only part of the story. In 1900, the life expectancy of a man of 50 was 21 years, that is, to 71, and in 1950, it was to 22 years, a gain of only one year. Another question arises. By keeping more weaker babies alive, are we potentially weakening the life expectancy of adults of tomorrow by perpetuating weaker strains? Another neglected factor is urbanization. City life, in the long run, has a depressing effect on the birth rate and apparently on virility. According to Thompson, the big mononucleated city is doing things to our reproductive life, the significance of which we realise only dimly as yet. In a study of London, Sinclair reported, Havelock Ellis, suggesting that a great metropolis swiftly kills those whom it attracts, tells how Cantley, 50 years ago, defined a Londoner as one whose parents and grandparents were born and bred in London. But during the four years in which he investigated this question, he was unable to find a single Londoner in this true and definite sense, and even those who were Londoners back to the grandparents on one side only were unusually stunted or feeble or unlikely to propagate. Dr. Harry Campbell, among 200 London-born children, found two or three whose parents and grandparents were born and bred in London, and these children were very delicate. The late George Russell, A.E., interested in the same phenomenon, was able to find only one person who was a fourth-generation Londoner. Studies do indicate that population density leads to social pathology and a decline in fertility. There is thus some indication that the growth of cities may lead naturally to a declining birth rate. Tentative evidence suggests that mental stress has an effect on the birth rate. The Soviet Union has long had a problem with a low birth rate, and census data is not freely released, nor is published information trustworthy. 
The low birth rate led to payments for births to increase the birth rate. Payments were set to begin with the third child. The estimated annual wage in Russia was 4,020 rubles for 1940, so a woman having a child every year received for her seventh and subsequent children more than her average worker or husband received for his work. However, she can't stop having children because, if she does, the down payments cease at once and the flow of income stops after four years. Since then, there has been no change of any significant sorts in the declining birth rate, according to all indications. Socialist life does not apparently promote fertility. France also is again concerned with a declining birth rate. Australia's birth rate is also declining, and Australians are wooing Europeans and Americans to come to their country. They offer to pay 90% of the fare. Ronald Freeman, director of the University of Michigan Population Studies Centre, has predicted a major decline in birth rates for much of Asia and cited evidence that it was already underway. In the United States, in 1966, a nine-year decline of 24% was reported and showed signs of continuing to decline. The decline continued in 1967. According to one headline, US birth rates butters out. As a result, revised estimates of future population statistics began to appear. Canada also experienced a marked decline in its birth rate. Population figures are lacking in black Africa, but the indications are that the breakup of tribal life is having a radical effect on the family, which is likely to affect the birth rate. Urbanism creates another problem, a brand new one. In 1939, less than 10% of the people in Africa lived in cities. Today, approximately 30% are urban dwellers. More than 70% of the rural men have left for urban areas. Demographers predict that at least 75% of the population will soon be urbanised. Statistics cannot show the moral and family breakdown that accompanies this shift, but the urban masses are rootless. But a declining birth rate does not necessarily mean a declining population. According to Leo Chern, for the United States to achieve a static population, the birth rate would have to be one-half what it is now. The alarmists thus feel our problem is still grave and needs radical solutions. Thus, Dr. Paul Ehrlich of Stanford University proposed limiting the US population to 150 million, 50 million fewer than at present. This requires compulsory controls to limit birth. The question thus must be raised, what controls birth? A variety of answers have been given. Zoologists now point out that animal fertility declines automatically after a certain density is reached. Is this operative in man? The answer of Thomas Robert Malthus, 1766-1834, was both highly rationalistic and biological. Malthus was not new in his propositions. He summed up effectively the Enlightenment approach to the subject of population. His conclusion, as he stated it, was this. Must it not then be acknowledged by an attentive examiner of the histories of mankind that, in every age and in every state in which man has existed or does not exist, the increase of population is necessarily limited by the means of subsistence? 
population invariably increases when the means of subsistence increase, unless prevented by powerful and obvious checks. These checks, and the checks which keep the population down to the level of the means of subsistence, are moral restraint, vice and misery. In the perspective of Malthus, man is basically driven by sexual drive to reproduce, and essentially only the lack of means of subsistence limits population. Malthus saw man as lacking in other than biological drives. The limitations on man are, in almost all cases, simply materialistic. In this respect, Malthus was biological in his theory. He was rationalistic, as all scientism is, in that he limited the causal factors to those which are rationally respectable and scientifically amenable. Marx and Engels were profoundly influenced by Malthus, in that Darwin applied to the problem of origins Malthus's theory of the survival of the fittest and biological causality. But Marx and Engels rejected Malthus because they felt his theory of population favoured the capitalist in survival against the worker. In 1844, in his Outlines of a Critique of Political Economy, Engels wrote on The Myth of Overpopulation. Marx and Engels at this point wanted a social theory of overpopulation, not a biological one. Man, capitalist economics, was responsible for famine and starvation, not nature. Distribution rather than supply was the problem. In 1822, Francis Place offered an answer to the quote-unquote problem of overpopulation, which caught the crusading fervour of many liberals in the next century and a half, birth control. The biological answer sees man mainly in terms of his reproductive drive. For these alarmists, reproduction is the enemy, and they outdo all ascetics in their horror of its power. The whole structure is threatened by human reproduction which, for the most part, has remained a force as uncivilised as fire in a factory or water in a surging flood. Biologically, mice are capable of multiplying so rapidly that in a few months or years they could cover the earth to a depth of six feet, and oysters could also do the same, and many other creatures as well, but they do not. And man has not always increased and multiplied to the capacity of his subsistence, he has often declined in the face of it. Moreover, while it is clearly true that people are in some areas overcrowded, it is also true that such overcrowding has existed more than once in history for a variety of reasons. We are told that a million people do sleep in the streets of Calcutta and people do live in a mountain of garbage outside Lima. But people often congregate for sociological reasons. That is, overcrowding has often psychological and cultural roots, economic roots, and is not merely a problem of overbreeding. India, for example, has a religious problem above all else. Because of its unwillingness to kill animal life, India is overpopulated with animals which are crowding out man. The sacred cows are a familiar fact, but rats are said to number 2.5 billion, and they consume more than 875 million bushels of cereal grain annually more than the United States could ship to them during 1966. An additional 25% of India's grain is lost through defective storage, transport, handling and processing facilities. It is also true that our natural resources are being laid waste and polluted. Maclean noted, 
Our basic problem right now is that more than 50% of the American people are crowded into 1.5% of our land, and for the most part in areas with no semblance of community planning. Indirectly, our oceans are slowly dying from malnutrition. But is this a product of overpopulation as such, or of a profoundly false view of man's relationship to the world around him? More than once a single miner has thoroughly polluted the stream without an assist from overpopulation. On the other hand, one major city, instead of polluting its land and waters with waste, is turning garbage into highly profitable fertiliser. Whether men and nations use and develop the earth or abuse and lay waste its resources is essentially a moral question, not a matter of overpopulation. Japan and the Netherlands have long had a history of high population density combined with an effective and wise use of natural resources. Only lately are they showing signs of moral dereliction here. Instead of being overpopulated, Dr. Carl Brandt has spoken of our serious underpopulation. By any standard, we can reasonably apply. This country will not be overpopulated with 350 million or many more people and will have a much higher standard of living. A geographer, Dr. George F. Carter, feels that population, quote, experts, end quote, are talking nonsense when they speak of overpopulation. First, let's consider how we are actually using our space. In the United States in the last census decade, 1950 to 1960, one half of all the countries in the United States lost population. Men are leaving the land and pouring into the cities. Scotland is emptying out and the wild moors are wilder than ever. The Hebrides now have many uninhabited islands, islands where men have lived for more than 5,000 years. Ireland has half as many people as 100 years ago. Yucatan, 500 years ago, may have had several 100 people per square mile, but now has one per square mile. So stop worrying so much about open spaces. We have more, not less, than we had 100 years ago, and we have better means of getting there, in case you really crave the quiet of the wilderness. Since 1957, the birth rate in the United States has declined every year. Should this trend continue, by the year 2000, deaths will outnumber births. Such things are possible. For instance, in Vienna, Austria, today, deaths are exceeding births at a rate of 2 to 1. Every country in Europe, except seven, is failing to produce sufficient children to replace the adult population. Suppression of such facts amounts to scandalous treatment of the data on population. India is not overcrowded by other nation standards. India, 300 per square mile, England, 600, and Holland, 800. If we want to play with figures, we can. These indicate that the more people you have per square mile, the more prosperous you are, and there is some truth to this. In many rural areas, especially in the eastern states, wild animals are making a strong comeback, and animals once believed to be extinct are reappearing. Norris, in calling attention to the declining birth rate, wrote in early 1967, Here in Oxnard, California, it appears that the birth rate has dropped nearly 40% in the past five years, and there are indications that it may drop even further this year. In view of these things, we are entitled to ask some questions. 
Why is this myth of overpopulation so vigorously promoted? What is involved in assuming that these, quote, experts, end quote, are right? What governs population increase and decrease? Are there governing factors which are neglected by the proponents of the myth?